So here's where we are right now. It's around 591 BCE. The Babylonian Empire is spreading rapidly with Nebuchadnezzar at its head. Only a small portion of the Jewish population has been left in Judah, and most of them are living in or around Jerusalem, which is the major fortified city. They're, they're living close enough they can run inside and slam the gates, you know, if, if the army attacks or whatever. So um, the rest have fled to Egypt or have been carted off to Babylon and are living there in exile including the former king, Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar has set up Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah as a puppet king in Jerusalem. Letters and couriers run frequently between Judah and Babylon, and the Lord has prophets working hard on both sides. Egypt is still in the mix as the world power, and it, and it seems to be the only hope for resisting complete world domination by the Babylonians, world in the biblical sense of world. But the Lord warns that Egypt's strength is an illusion, and the Lord begs his people to turn to him for protection instead. In Judah, we've been following the prophet Jeremiah. While in Babylon, we were introduced last week to the young prophet Ezekiel. The words and actions of both prophets are, commuted, are communicated back and forth to both sets of people, the ones left in Jerusalem and the thousands in exile in Babylon. When we stopped last week, Ezekiel was having a vision of the spirit of God. In his vision, the spirit was fiery from the waist down, but from the waist up, he glowed like metal. The spirit grabs Ezekiel by the hair and transports him from Babylon to the temple in Jerusalem. And the spirit shows him all the ugly, detestable things the people and their leaders are doing, both in public and in secret. The temple is filled with idol worship and the land is filled with violence. And the Lord is not going to stand by anymore. In Ezekiel's vision, the Lord calls seven angels, one to go through Jerusalem and place the Lord's mark on all who grieve the terrible things being done in Israel. The other six are to follow him and slaughter everyone else, anyone without the Lord's mark on them. It is a grim vision of disaster that is at Jerusalem's very threshold, and yet there are strong echoes here of the Passover story, right? The Lord has his eye on the people who still seek him. Ezekiel falls face down before the Lord. In the vision, he's still inside the temple with the Lord. And as we pick up the story today in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, the angel with the writing kit has just come back to report that all the Lord's people have been marked. This angel is dressed differently than the others. He's dressed in fine linen, and Ezekiel refers to him as, quote, the man clothed in linen, end quote. As Ezekiel looks up, he sees again the throne of God over the heads of the Caribbean, and they're on the south side of the temple right now. 
The Lord says to the man clothed in linen, go in among the carabine. From among the whirling wheels, fill your hands with burning coals, then scatter these coals across Jerusalem. As the man in linen enters between the carabine, a cloud fills the inner court of the temple, and the glory of the Lord rises from above the carabine and moves to the eastern threshold of the temple. And the holy cloud utterly fills the inner court of the temple and the radiance of the glory of the Lord fills the temple itself. Ezekiel can hear the mighty sound of the wings of the carabim all the way out in the outer court of the temple. And again, the sound, he says, is the sound of El Shaddai. Now remember our study back in class four, in the study guide for that class, we looked closely at this particular name of God, El Shaddai. We discovered that in Genesis, where this name is introduced, El Shaddai is always associated with blessing and fruitfulness. We saw that the ancient pictograph or hieroglyph, or whatever you want to call it, for the word is a pair of shriveled breasts hanging down. This name for God is rooted in an image of a God who has given all she has to give. Ezekiel describes the sound of El Shaddai as being the sound of the mighty wings of the Caribbean whenever they move. And to Ezekiel, it sounds like the movement of a large army. It is a great and awesome sound. And this may be one reason why El Shaddai in our Bible translations is usually translated God Almighty rather than God who gives all or life sustaining God or something like that. But I think the real reason has to do with patriarchy. To make El Shaddai mean destroyer or some other military meaning like it takes on in our English translations, you have to add an extra consonant to the Hebrew, changing it to Shaddad, which of course changes the meaning entirely. God's very essence is self-sacrificial love, and God's spirit moves with the power and fearsomeness of a mighty army. But I want you to understand the depth and the context of this name, El Shaddai. It is not the name of wrath. It is the name of a God who has given all, a God who has given all to us. And this is the context of the name associated with Ezekiel's vision of God's judgment on Jerusalem. As Ezekiel watches, one of the Caribbean plucks some of the fire from among them and puts it into the hands of the man in linen. The man in linen takes that holy fire and goes out of the temple. Then the Caribbean rise upwards and the glory of the Lord, that great cloud of radiance, pauses at the east gate. And then the Caribbean spread their wings and depart as the glory of the Lord 
leaves the temple. This is a terrible, tragic moment. God's people have literally driven El Shaddai, the God of blessing, away from them. All this time, for nearly a thousand years, God has been working so hard to get these people to love him and trust him and open their hearts to his blessings. He's tried to get them to be merciful and compassionate and just to each other and to those among them who are foreigners or widows or orphans or, or poor, and they have emphatically refused. In a recent lesson, I mentioned that when Jeremiah listed all the articles left in the temple at this point, there were only the larger bronze articles left. The golden Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies was not listed, and we have to assume it had been either stripped for its gold or taken by Nebuchadnezzar when he ransacked the temple some years earlier and took everything that was gold. But even though this physical Ark of the Covenant is not present. God is still present. God was still there in his holy temple, giving, giving, giving to his people. And now God is finally leaving them to their own choices. They have driven him away. This is heartbreaking on every possible level. Ezekiel is heartbroken as well. His vision continues with the Lord's stern words to the 25 leaders who are plotting evil and speaking wicked words of so-called advice to the people. And as Ezekiel tells of all the things he's seeing in his vision, one of these men actually dies. And Ezekiel cries out, oh, Lord, will you destroy us all, even this pitiful remnant? And God says, I will gather my people back. I have been a sanctuary for those already scattered. And when I gather you back, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a whole heart, undivided, a heart of flesh, and I will put a new spirit within you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. But those who insist on devoting their hearts to the vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their heads what they have done. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That was quite a vision. I imagine it took Ezekiel quite a while to recover. And I imagine the elders of Judah who had gathered at Ezekiel's house and had witnessed him having this vision, had quite a lot to think about afterwards. But the Lord isn't going to let them sit. The Lord is pursuing his people every moment of every day now. The end is near and they must understand. So the Lord tells Ezekiel, every day, pack up your stuff as if you are going into exile. And in the evening, when everyone is watching, 
dig a hole in the wall that is enclosing the camp and then crawl through the hole and leave, taking all your stuff with you. But cover your face so you cannot see where you are going. And when the people ask you what in the world you're doing, tell them, I am assigned to you. This is what will happen in Jerusalem. The prince will put his things on his shoulder and in the evening he will sneak out through a hole in the wall. But I, the Lord, will spread my net for him and he will be captured. I will scatter the soldiers protecting him. The king will be brought to Babylon, but he will not see it. And there he will die. Then they will know that I am the Lord. There's that special phrase, I am the Lord. That's the second time we've seen it today. We noticed in earlier classes that God uses this phrase to emphasize a particularly important message. If you've gone through your Bible and circled every time this phrase appears, you'll see it peppered all throughout this part of Ezekiel. It's another sign in the text itself that God is dead serious. Time is short and the time to change is now. Chapters 16, 20, and 23 in Ezekiel are important because they make quite clear how the Lord views his relationship with Jerusalem, Judah, and Israel. So to the Lord, it is a relationship of a spouse. In these chapters, Jerusalem was identified as the Lord's future spouse while in infancy, but the marriage was not consummated until after the child, Jerusalem, was raised and became an adult. It's a very Eastern arranged marriage sort of imagery used in these these chapters. The Lord says, Jerusalem, I took you as my own when you were rejected by your pagan parents. I tended you through puberty, and when you were old enough for love, I covered you with my garment. I gave you my solemn oath, my covenant, and you became mine. I washed you and dressed you in fine clothes and jewelry. You were so very beautiful. You became the envy of all those around you because of the splendor I bestowed on you. But you prostituted yourself and used what I gave you to pay other lovers. You took your children, our children, and sacrificed them to idols. Woe, woe to you. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with the engorged genitals. And even that wasn't enough. You also gave yourself to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So I have given you over to all your lovers. I am filled with fury. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to me. In chapter 23, the Lord calls Samaria, the former capital of Israel, Ahola, and he calls Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, Aholabah, and he calls both of them prostitutes. 
Now, both names are based on the word for tent or dwelling. God is serious when he says that he dwells among us and that we need to take that very seriously ourselves. Chapter 23 is a pretty brutal and sexually explicit chapter. So we won't cover it in class, but it is a very famous chapter. The Lord continues, I will gather all your lovers together and show them exactly how despicable you really are. They will bring a mob against you. They will destroy you and strip you naked. I will put a stop to your prostitution. You will no longer pay others to love you. At this point, the Lord is speaking specifically to Jerusalem, which for all intents and purposes is all that's left of Judah. And then the Lord says some very striking things. Jerusalem, your mother and father were idol worshipers, Hittites and Amorites. Your older sister to the north was Samaria, and your younger sister to the south was Sodom. Samaria did not do half the things you've done, and look what happened to them. And what was your sister Sodom's sin? As an aside, if you're waiting for the Lord to say homosexuality, you'll be waiting a long time, because that was not the sin of Sodom. We covered that back in class five, but here is where the Lord says specifically what he does see as Sodom's sin. The NIV translation of Ezekiel 16.49 says it best, I think. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. And you, Jerusalem, have been so much worse that you make Sodom and Samaria look righteous. Shame on you. But I will restore the fortunes of both Samaria and Sodom, and I will restore you right along with them. You will have to bear your shame and disgrace, but you will bear it by comforting them. You shunned Sodom and Samaria in the past, but now you will be ashamed of how you acted. You will never again open your mouth in such a way. You can feel the intensity ratcheting up. Things are rapidly coming to a head. Two more years have passed. It's now 589 BCE. Pharaoh Hophra also known as Apris, comes to the throne in Egypt, and you guessed it, King Zedekiah rebels against Babylon and allies himself with Egypt. In Babylon, the Lord gives Ezekiel a parable to tell the people. In the parable, a great eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, takes the top of a great cedar in Lebanon, that would be the royal descendants of David, and plants that shoot in a city of traders, that would be Babylon. And he plants a seedling, King Zedekiah, and tends it well. It never becomes a great tree, 
but it is a healthy spreading vine. But the seedling, Zedekiah, was attracted by another great eagle, Egypt, and looked to this new eagle for water, even though it had been well provided for by the first eagle. And the Lord says, tell these rebellious people that the seedling will wither and be uprooted. Zedekiah will die in Babylon for breaking his treaty with Nebuchadnezzar. And the Pharaoh of Egypt will be useless in his defense. But I myself will take a shoot from the very top of the cedar tree of David's descendants, and I myself will plant it on a great mountain of Israel, and there it will grow and become a majestic cedar tree. All kinds of birds will nest in it and find shelter in its shade, and all the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the mighty and raise up the lowly. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. So there's that shoot language again, another messianic prophecy. And notice the wholly inclusive reference to all kinds of birds and all the trees of the forest being involved. And notice that Mary's Magnificat, her song of praise, after the angel told her she was going to have a baby, God's baby, she said these words. She praised the Lord who brings down the mighty and raises up the lowly. There's just, this is a huge messianic prophecy that we as Christians see fulfilled in Jesus. But now it's very late in 589 BCE. In chapter 21, the Lord tells Ezekiel to make a signpost and put it just outside the city where the road branches. One branch goes off towards Rabbah, the capital of the Ammonites, while the other branch goes off towards Jerusalem. The Lord tells Ezekiel that Nebuchadnezzar will stop at this fork in the road. He'll cast lots using arrows. He'll consult his idols. He'll examine sheep livers, sort of how people today might examine tea leaves, to decide which city will he attack. And Jerusalem will be chosen. And so on January 15th, 588 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. He lays siege ramps and scaffolding and sets up battering rams against the gates. Of course, King Zedekiah absolutely panics. He sends for Jeremiah to see if the Lord will miraculously rescue Jerusalem like he's done in the past. This is in uh, chapter 21. And Jeremiah says, uh, no, the Lord is fighting against you this time. The people and the animals inside this city will die of a terrible plague. And those who survive the plague will die by famine. And those surviving famine will die by the sword of the Babylonians. You yourself will be given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But anyone who goes outside of the city and surrenders to the Babylonians will be spared. And anyone who stays inside the city will die, for Nebuchadnezzar will burn it to the ground. 
And then in cha chapter 34, the word to Zedekiah continues. You, King Zedekiah, will be captured and brought face to face with King Nebuchadnezzar. You will see him with your own eyes. And then you will be taken to Babylon. And there you will die in peace and be mourned. Now, this seems comforting, but you have to be careful about becoming complacent and self-confident when dealing with prophecy. All these words are true, but nowhere does the Lord say Zedekiah will be spared extreme suffering. The fighting, of course, is not just restricted to Jerusalem. All of Judah's fortified cities are being desperately defended against the Babylonian attacks. Two of the fortified cities specifically mentioned in the story are Azekah and Lachish, and their involvement is confirmed by archaeological evidence. Shards of pottery have been recovered from Lachish with urgent messages that passed from a subordinate to his military commander. This one, Lachish letter four, ends with the chilling words, May my Lord be apprised that we are watching for the fire signals of Lachish, according to all the signs which my Lord has given, because we cannot see Azekah. The situation is terribly desperate. But what about the alliance with Egypt? Where is Pharaoh a priest? Well, Jeremiah tells us what happens in chapter 37. He tells us that Pharaoh's army does indeed march out to help Jerusalem, and the Babylonians withdraw from Jerusalem to go fight the Egyptians. But the Lord sends Jeremiah to King Zedekiah with a message. The Babylonians have indeed withdrawn from their siege on Jerusalem, but it is only temporary. They will defeat the Egyptians and will return to burn this city down, and you can do nothing to stop it, for this is the Lord's doing. Well, during this lull in the siege, Jeremiah tries to leave Jerusalem to go to his tribal home in Benjamin. But when he gets to the gate, the captain of the guard arrests him for desertion, claiming he's leaving to join the Babylonians. And Jeremiah says, I'm not deserting, but the captain will not listen to him, probably because Jeremiah has told King Zedekiah repeatedly that anyone surrendering to the Babylonians will be saved, while anyone staying inside the city will be killed or taken captive. Well, the upshot of it is, that Jeremiah is beaten and thrown into a dungeon where he stays a long time. Finally, King Zedekiah can't stand the suspense anymore and secretly has Jeremiah brought to him so he can find out if there's been any new word from the Lord. If, Jer if Zedekiah lived nowadays, he'd be a doom scroller. Jeremiah says, yes, the word is that you will be captured by the Babylonians. I know you don't want to hear that, but I'm telling you the truth. I am not a criminal. Please don't send me back to prison or I will die there. And King Zedekiah relents and gives an order for Jeremiah to be housed with the palace guards and given a loaf of bread every day until all the bread in the city runs out. Well, that does not sit well with the king's officials. They tell the king, Jeremiah should be put to death. He is ruining morale. And wishy-washy old King Zedekiah capitulates and hands Jeremiah over to them. 
they immediately take Jeremiah and lower him into a muddy cistern there in the courtyard of the guard. But a man named Ebenmelech comes to Jeremiah's defense. He's from Cush, a country in um, the Egyptian region, ironically, just south of Egypt. And I think it's very interesting that Ebed-Melech's name means servant king or servant of the king. In this case, this foreigner is certainly a servant of Yahweh. Ebed-Melech goes to King Zedekiah and says, what these men have done is wicked. Jeremiah will die of starvation in that cistern. So the king orders Ebed-Melech to get 30 men and lift Jeremiah out of the cistern. And so Ebed-Melech has Jeremiah gently lifted out with padded ropes. And Jeremiah is once again confined to the courtyard of the guards. But at least he's given bread to eat and is relatively safe. Meanwhile, back on the front, As soon as the Egyptians face the Babylonians, they withdraw and return to Egypt, and the Babylonians wheel around and return to resume their siege on Jerusalem. Well, the Lord has a few choice words to say to Egypt. This time, he says them to both Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 29 and to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 46. The date is January, oops, the date is January 7th, 587 BCE. We are almost exactly one year into the siege of Jerusalem. The Lord says, Egypt has been nothing but a broken reed. Every time my people try to rely on you, you splinter in their hands. When they lean on you, you break and wrench their backs. Therefore, I am coming against you, Egypt. You will be laid waste. You will be utterly desolate. And neither man nor animal will enter for 40 years. But at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptian people from all the places they were scattered. I will bring them back. But they will forever be the lowliest kingdom on earth. They will no longer be in a position to inspire confidence, but will be forever humbled. And in this way, they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. There's that phrase again, but with extra emphasis added, this will definitely happen. And it is a pretty devastating prophecy, and it does not seem to have happened yet right? So we'll file that under the heading of end time prophecies. The number 40 in the Bible can be literal, but it is usually shorthand for, quote, a long time, end quote. Egypt will be devastated for 40 years or some indeterminately long period. It's people scattered before being restored by the Lord. So this seems to be a good place to stop. In our breakout sessions, we're going to think a little bit about those sisters, Samaria and Jerusalem, Ahola and Aholaba. Hey, everybody, turn your microphones back on so we can talk. <laughs> it was that that chapter 23 is a doozy. So what in question one was in Ezekiel 23, God named Samaria 
Israel's capital, Oholah, and he names Jerusalem, Judah's capital, Oholabah, and calls them two daughters of the same mother. And he says they engaged in prostitution from their youth in Egypt when their virgin breasts were caressed there. What is God talking about here? What was it about Egypt that he's referring to? The, they, kept, they were asking Egypt to protect them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they've done, they did that multiple times. They and did. Egypt was like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll protect you, and then never showed up. And That's it's like, true. But if we're thinking about Hebrews back, we're, we're thinking about all the way back to their youth. Could oh, it, when they were slaves in slaves Egypt. In ah, what about okay. that time? What? So I'm kind of thinking that's where the Lord is saying that in your youth, when you were a virgin, you were caressed there in Egypt. And that hooked you. You know? What? Well, if, if Egyptian slavery was caressing them, they must be into BDSM. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but we talked about this when when they got out in the in the um, they kept desert. wanting to go back. Yes, they kept yeah. wanting to go back. Now, what does that tell you? Put together in your heads the idea of the underage sexual abuse and the yeah. being rescued and keeping wanting to go back. What does that pattern sound like? The devil, you know. Mm-hmm. Devil, oh my you know. gosh, yes. Because sometimes, sometimes you want to stay in a, a relationship that might not be exactly what you want, but it's better than not having a relationship. Also, I think a lot of times with with, with children who are molested they are told by their abusers i'm doing this because i love you yes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. frequently even as adults it's very difficult to separate the understanding that abuse is not love Mm -hmm. yeah and maybe there's also the exhaustion of having to start all over again with something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times uh, they don't leave, yeah, they don't leave those relationships because the amount of energy it takes to change yourself, change your environment, be dependent on yourself is just so overwhelming. Yeah. And a lot of times because of the way your abuser talks you you feel that's the only thing there is mm-hmm. yes and there- i i was i was an abused kid so um it's 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 really bizarre because even though you know what's going on isn't right it's all you know yes yes and finally you get old enough where it's like okay i will get away from this and then it's like oh maybe i made a mistake the self-doubt is huge. It is huge. But we also, um, pretty much for every question here, we saw idolatry. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. They, they, they were caressed um, by the, 
by the idols. They they learned about the idols and they were interested in the the idolatry of Egypt. And then they you know have gotten so far from that that they've forgotten what they had learned along the way. And and it all they all just kind of went back to, you know, it's it's like um birds that imprint. You know, and mm-hmm. then they follow. <laughs> it's like they've imprinted on them, and they they can't let go of the imprint. That's a that's a probably a really apt analogy um, because in in my work and training, you know, having to do with with survivors of childhood abuse, um, it affects your identity. It actually can cause your identity to kind of go into hiding and not want to ever come out again. Um, And so you take on this identity of expectation of, of what is pleasing of what is acceptable to other people. There is very often an inward pointing despising. Mm -hmm. And, and in order to, um, to cope with that, you have to keep that part of yourself hidden at all costs, because if you despise that identity, certainly everybody else will. Mm-hmm. And, and that you often begin to um, conform. And you can conform in extreme ways and in extreme circles. You just basically, you end up latching on to some community that that feeds that identity with approval and doesn't threaten the true one that you've got hidden away. Mm -hmm. And um, and, to Julie's point about the exhaustion, it's very often easier to find somebody who fits that same pattern of communication, personality, words, everything, because that feels familiar and right to you, you know, and then you end up the same thing happening over again when you had these high hopes that it wouldn't, you know, and then it's just over and over and over and over. And so, yeah. Um, Yeah, I, you know, I have a, a, a chosen daughter. Um, who's a young woman that I met at Gay Christian Network Conference, um, who was raised in an incredibly abusive environment. I mean, any level of abuse, any type of abuse, she was a victim of it. Um, And somehow survived it, but, you know, has been on a very long journey of healing. And one of the things that she has really struggled with um, also, which this kind of popped up, in my mind just now is um, difficulty trusting that what people say to her now mm-hmm. is true. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, an attachment disorder that, that, you know, everything is sort of seen new relationships, new connections are seen with this rosy idealistic view of a small child. And when the other person disappoints her, it is, or even a job disappoints her, it is extremely difficult for her to be able to work through that mm-hmm. to say, well, no, this person's human. They made a mistake. That doesn't mean that they're going to now turn around and beat me, hurt me, abuse me, molest me, 
you know, all these things that happened in her childhood. Um, I need to just trust that their intentions are still good and that they still care and not want to run. Either that um, or you have the opposite of that, which I'm fighting through currently, which is looking at everything through the eyes of um, they are trying to hurt me. They are, you know, looking at everything not being able to filter what I'm projecting on somebody or if that's really who they are. Really. So let's take that. Let's take that overlay and think about the Hebrews in Egypt. Okay. Mm -hmm. And understand how, um, enamored they became of Egypt's civilization of their gods of their sophistication of the fact that they were a world power um i think renee pointed to the fact that that you know while they were in the wilderness they kept kept longing for the leeks and onions of egypt you know and and um uh and think about how god was their rescuer and god was not another abuser they didn't know that, mm-hmm. you know, but God, not, uh, on that. Uh, God was not, well, you can't talk to an abused person and, and have anything come through, That's true. you know, right. there's, there's no, there's no context to understand faithful, loving, rescuing. Well, well, so we talked along, about one of the questions, I forget which one it was. But the people in Jerusalem had quit looking to God and they kept seeing, why isn't he doing X, Y, Z? Why isn't this all happening for us? Like you said, looking to the glory of Egypt and what all it possessed. And they weren't enjoying that civilization and those luxuries. And they kept wondering, why is God persecuting us? And what they weren't seeing is that they had turned their faith away from God. And they weren't seeing the good things God was doing for them. And he was literally shaking them, mm-hmm. saying, "We, th- there are consequences to this behavior. And mm-hmm. nobody was catching on. And I think one of the things that Marlene brought up was the guy the, the prophet going through the wall with his head covered Ezekiel being, uh-huh. as, being as though it were performance art yes. you know and trying to get their attention and it was getting more and more extreme as it went along it started out mild but now we've got a guy going through a wall with his head covered and you would think some people just went he's a nut job and other people would probably be trying to figure out what does this mean and if you have seen performance art you talk about it mm-hmm. you know and and there is a scuttlebutt that goes around and and when someone gets something they want to share it but nobody was coming around to god loves us god wants our attention let's just turn back Yes. And I think that, I think that 
when they came out of Egypt, God knew who they were. And that's why he led them into the wilderness where there were no other civilizations. Nothing Mm -hmm. but them and God. It was like an intervention, (laughs) you know? And, And God just showed them love. God fed them every day miraculously out of the sky and they still didn't get it and god healed them and made their clothes last and gave them water out of rocks and there was this whole period where god said look look at me look at who i am i am not your abuser choose me you know and and then when they went in the promised land finally to be blessed and God would to, to, to lead, you know, to defend them against all comers. They just couldn't let go, you know, Um, and continue to reach out as in this, these, this sad, sad chapter to the Egyptians and then to the Assyrians and then to the Babylonians and whoever else. And they literally paid them. They paid those nations tribute in order to protect them, you know, when the Lord was right there. Erica and Ellen, did y'all have something to? Um, It's reminding me of, um, at the beginning of the class, you had talked about God wanting them to view him as protector. And, but it's, I'm going to attribute it to their trauma, like kind of their trauma being triggered again. It's almost like God was completely moved from that identity anymore it's like they they didn't even have a category for god being there anymore um mm-hmm. it's, it's so it's like it's a kind of a parallel to the hosea story yes you know of like you're Yay. experiencing this healing yes. moment and then suddenly your trauma's triggered again and it's just you're back in fight flight or freeze you know just mm-hmm. I, I just have to survive right now and the only thing that seems immediate and present um i mean i can see that in my own life for sure but it, it just seems like they're, you know, we can sit there and go like, what is your issue? Well, their issue is they've had a, a, a horrific journey in addition to these beautiful healing moments. But mm-hmm. it's so sad. I, I look at it in my own life and go, why, why is it kind of our human personality to bend more towards the trauma drama versus the, I want to protect you. I want to be there for you. I want to, you know, provide yeah. for you. So. And I think that, um, in uh, question two, when it talks about, you know, we had sons and daughters together, you and I, you know, and you Mm -hmm. sacrificed them to. So now God is addressing how, how an abuser, someone in Judah and Israel have become the abuser now, right? to these children who are being sacrificed. And I wanted, and I was asking you, who is the abuser and who are the children in this? Well, in our group, we kind of saw this as a, as a, as a double meaning thing. I mean, there was the literal sacrificing of children to Mm -hmm. the idols outside the walls of Jerusalem, but then also the leaders and the priests of Jerusalem were leading the people astray and sacrificing them again at a spiritual level and also in their welfare by 
by, you know, prostituting themselves to the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And so it was like a double sacrificing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the same exact thing was happening in Israel when Israel was, was there, you know. You know, I think when you have been traumatized, and I would imagine this is true in the nation as well as an individual, it's hard to see who's the good guys and who's the bad guys, because you don't have a proper filter. And there are some things that very easily appear as protection that appear as love, that you don't have the proper um, discernment, the proper compare it, compare it, things to compare it to. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so your, your view is skewed and therefore it's hard to see reality separated from yes. abuse. And I think that's exactly think- what's happening here is is those God gave them anointed leaders for them, you know, and then the, the leaders ended up with a couple of very few exceptions, you know, the leaders ended up taking um, power for themselves (laughs) and, and leading the people away from God, leading the people in, not teaching them right, you know, leading them away. Uh, And, and so God is not happy about that, but God is more unhappy with those leaders than with the people who were being abused all over again. Right. I mean, this is, everybody has responsibility, of course, for your own choices. And the Lord's word through the prophets was heard by everybody. But God holds the leaders particularly accountable, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think that's who he's speaking to here when he's talking to Ahola and Aholabah. And um, in the third question, um, the the Lord reviews um, how they kept prostituting themselves. And finally, God turned in disgust and said, I will stir your lovers against you. And they will punish you according to their standards. Since you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. So what is the lewdness and prostitution here? Idolatry. It it is. Unfaithfulness and unbelief. Yeah. Putting faith in things that they could see and were tangible like other nations. Right. Rescuing them. Mm-hmm. And not putting their faith in God, who has been trying so hard to get their attention. And he's yes. exasperated at this point. And what will the consequences of this be? It's, it was he's going to give them what 24. they wanted. He's going to give them what they wanted. Yeah, but it's, it's what, it, what, it, what it was, was God, yes, God is going to give them to those nations, <laughs> you know. And but those nations are going to abuse them. Those nations are going to kill them. They're not. And I think at that time God steps away for a while and just allows them to see the consequence. But he's always there, and he's yearning to step back in 
but it's like when you have children that you say don't touch that stove and they touch it you want to help them you you mend their pain you know their their wound but you can't take the pain away yes yes and in who was that sorry go ahead i was just going to say in verse 24 he said i will stir up your lovers against you and they will punish you according to their standards Mm -hmm. what's going to happen is these other nations will come and do to you what people in this barbaric ancient culture do (laughs) um, when they attack and destroy another nation we took it even a step further than julia um, was just talking about um, your adult children that you know you have tried to guide them you have tried to steer them in the right path and they keep going the way they want to go and eventually you reach a point where you say fine that's what you want to do I'm still here I still love you when you realize that this is a really bad situation I will be here when you come back I will be here but go ahead go do what you wanted to do and we see this this theme played out over and over and over in these prophets that are saying what's going to happen now and what's going to happen afterwards. So the, and, and absolutely spot on. So the very last question we're getting, we're to the end of class um, was when God says he'll put an end to lewdness in the land that all women may take warning and not imitate you. Well, what women are in view here? nation yeah i think it goes back to the imagery of you you were my daughters you are you know and then you are my wives and and you have behaved in this unseemly manner yeah (laughs) yes is it is it like us you know who are women now in the church you know no do you think this verse is used like that Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when they this, talk about women they're not referring to genitalia i know yes. it. <laughs> i know it but this is one of the cases this is a prime example where people will say but it's the bible says in plain english yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Too bad it wasn't written in English. Yeah, in plain still, english in plain english <laughs> it says you know um, and, and, and I just was bringing that up just to say <laughs> that we combat that sort of thing every day. Um, and I, uh, sometimes you can, you can say something and sometimes you can't, you know, um, well, our group brought up, um, we were talking about that and because we were talking about some of the references where they were using prostitution or adultery. And prostitution has like a much more negative effect, connotation. Mm -hmm. And so why did they use this word and that? Well, I think because the patriarchy that translated it in English wanted to make sure women knew that, yeah, you're you're all to blame. (laughs) Everything (laughs) that goes wrong, it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was interesting um, that, you know, when the description was being made about how um, Ohola and, and Oholaba um, were 
prostituting themselves, but also talked about how they were paying their lovers. Yes. You know, yes. which, which was, you know, like the tribute to these other Kings, but it seemed, you know, I mean, it's different than how we see prostitution today where it would have been them that were being paid. Well, yeah. And it seemed and that, even what back was going then, on was, was them being paid. You know, this was like beyond yeah. the pale. This was beyond being a sex worker. This was, you know, yeah. 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 It was, it was, you know, to me, it seemed more like what was happening was, was, you know, God's people were, were, were committing adultery and actually paying for these favors um, and sort of basically seeing these other countries in a way as prostitutes to them, even though they were completely subjugating themselves. Yes. And I think that that's the takeaway here is the Lord is saying to his people, don't debase yourselves because you are precious in my sight. Oh, Gail, that's beautiful. I think that brings yeah. it full circle. Mm-hmm. So we, we're way yeah. over time, um, so we probably need to quit today. We'll have class next week and do the fall of Jerusalem. Then we'll take a one week break. <laughs>